Welcome to The Bill Walton Show, featuring conversations with leaders, entrepreneurs, artists and thinkers. Fresh perspectives on money, culture, politics and human flourishing. Interesting people, interesting things. Welcome to The Bill Walton Show. I'm Bill Walton. Well, we're back with a topic and a guest, uh, in fact, two guests that have been on the show many times before, and, and, but in particular, this one we want to follow up is uh, a book that we talked about, I think it was in May of this year, called The Weaponization of Loneliness, which is subtitled How Tyrants Stoke Our Fear of Isolation to Silence, Divide, and Conquer. And Stella Maravito, welcome back, Stella. Thank you. Uh, is the author, and she's also a senior contributor at uh, Federalist, where she's been there since 2014, writing on uh, threats to our freedom from propaganda, groupthink, censorship, and, and cult mindsets. And as I mentioned, her book is, is caught fire, and I needed help uh, managing this, uh, this conversation. I've asked Mark Tatscott to come back on. Mark, as you may recollect, is an amazing writer and, and thinker and journalist, uh, he uh, has won, uh, the, uh, he covers Congress for the Epic Times, and it was founding editor of Hill Faith, which is a Christian ministry serving congressional aides on Capitol Hill. Uh, he's, he's in the National Freedom of Information Act Hall of Fame and was CPAC's uh, Conservative Journalist of the Year Award in 2008. And since then, he's been being amazing ever since. So we, we really... Yeah, I think Stella, you stuck a nerve, struck a nerve with this. I've gotten more comments on this, sh the show we did on your on the weaponization of loneliness. I think than anything I can recollect. Well, that's wonderful, but I think it resonates. I, I think my, you know, my thesis resonates with a lot of people because people are scared to death of being ostracized just for speaking their minds. And so, um, you know, if if you got a lot of comments, first of all, that's fantastic. Um, and hopefully, second, we sold a lot of books. Well, that would be fantastic, too. Wait, I, uh, we need a book. Right here. Right here, let me see. Yeah. Okay. And um, so, it, you know, it resonates. The, the message resonates. And uh, first of all, I also want to say it's great to be back here with you, Bill, and wonderful to be here with Mark. Uh, you know, I used to, I, I submitted some op-eds for the Examiner back in the day, you know, and, and it was great. Great to you were editorial uh, go back page and forth. He was the executive yeah. editor yeah. at the time. Yeah. 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 So anyway, um, first did he accept them, and did he write? Yes. Did he rewrite them? Unless they were too long. <laughs> Unless they went over that. What yeah, is it? Five hundred words? Yeah, something like that. I, so. I have to say, I have to say, you know, you get people together in a, a journalistic setting, and there's usually a lot of compliments being thrown around. But this is absolutely sincere. I have read hundreds and hundreds of new submissions. With Stella's first, I said to myself then, and I think I said something to you about this, you're going to go a long way because she has real talent. And this book she has, has done, um, as I said in a review a couple of weeks ago, it, um, it ranks up there with some real classics uh, in political theory. Thank yeah, you. you compared it to uh, Hannah Arendt's yeah. The uh, Origins of Totalitarianism, uh, and especially the uh, Jean-Francois, Jean I can't say it, Ravel, a French guy, um, the uh, impulse, the totalitarian impulse, which basically is a wonderful explanation of why liberals inevitably end up approaching tyranny. Well, I want, I want to talk couple of big big things here one if you, if you can recap the thesis of the book and we can talk about that but I really want to get to lines of action and what what people can do about this mm -hmm. but then the other thing is in in between the time you and I talked last and uh, today uh, we now have the US Surgeon General who's going to solve our loneliness problem they just put out a big 81 page report on Called our episode, our epidemic of loneliness and isolation. So we're now going to have the federal government, which I would think would be one of the main culprits behind isolation Absolutely. and loneliness. But that's that's one one man's view. 
And then we also have Chris Murphy, who's a he's a Democrat congressman from Connecticut, I think. Senator from Connecticut. Senator. Well, he's introduced the National Strategy for Social Connection Act. Right on the heels of Murphy's uh, advisory, the Surgeon General's advisory. Right? So, so, but let's. It's well, coincidental. It's oh, coincidental. It's just, well, I think they read Stella's book and thought there's a big opportunity. <laughs> so, Stella, to re recap, and then we'll jump. All righty. <clears throat> well, the weaponization of loneliness is basically about isolation, social isolation as a political weapon. How tyrants really, especially in modern history, but from time, and, time immemorial, have, have tried to uh, navigate people into their narrative through that threat of being ostracized if you don't accept the narrative. So, um, you know, I go through, I've got about 10 chapters where I examine the conformity impulse as well as the totalitarian impulse and the making of mobs and what I call the machinery of loneliness and how tyrants, whether it's instinctive or conscious, seem to understand how to push people to, uh, into their propaganda and their agendas through that fear, cultivating that fear of ostracism. And we can go into, you know, how that's been done even most recently with COVID. But on the heels of so much of this, including COVID, uh, you have the Surgeon General of the United States coming out with this advisory, which means that it's a very urgent public health matter to solve the loneliness epidemic and social isolation in this country. And we can go into more detail about how this advisory would basically bureaucratize and regulate human relationships, which is, you know, unbelievable, you know, that, that uh, we would get to that point in this country. But on the heels of that advisory, just recently, um, the um, Chris Murphy, the Democrat senator from Connecticut, comes out with this strategy, his act. It's supposed to be an act of Congress. Uh, he introduced a bill called the uh, Strategy for Social Connection Act. So here, which would install an office uh, right now, uh, it's proposed in the president's office, uh, to create these strategies to help us, you know, kind of get over our loneliness epidemic, which I believe, I agree with you, Bill, uh, the government is the main culprit for the loneliness epidemic. I mean, if you look at all the policies, they're not dialing back on any of them whether it has to do with um, family breakdown, urban blight, addictions, now, all of that. Now, this is the same government that said, lock yourself up. Yes. Don't talk to anybody. Stay, stay, stay far, far away from other people as you can. Cover your face. Uh, and I forget all the other fun things they had us do. Oh, shut your business down. Uh, unless you're Lowe's or... or uh, or Home Depot, or one of one of the big ones. But if you're a small business, you got to shut your business down. Restaurant, gyms, churches. Let's shut those down. Churches aren't, you know, we don't need those. I mean, you know, come on. Uh, nobody goes to church. So that's what they did. And now, three years later, they're coming along to say, "Well, gee, now we're going to solve all the problems that we created." That's Mark, that's what that's do you what do you, you cover? You cover the hill. Tell us about Mark. That, tell us about. Senator you, Murphy, you captured it in that last <laughs> sentence. We're going to solve this problem that we have created. That's I've been in Washington D.C. Uh, since 1976 um, in government, working on Capitol Hill, and then for 30 some years as a journalist covering Capitol Hill and national politics. And this is a pattern that you see over and over again. The government identifies what it considers to be a problem and then puts itself forward as the solution. And, of course, the solution always magnifies the power, the influence, the cost, uh, and the consequences of government. Uh, it's like Ronald Reagan said, the nine most terrifying words in the English language are, I'm here from the government and I'm here to help you. Uh, well, Thanks, but no thanks, many Americans say, and hopefully more Americans will be saying in the future. So, still, what kind of reaction have you gotten from just sort of a, the rest of us men on the street, men and women on the street? What are people saying? I know Mercy Schlapp has been 
singing the praises of the book yeah. every time she gives a speech. Mercy, of course, is with CPAC and is on, uh, I think she's on. Uh, uh, she's on Newsmax. Now. Newsmax all yeah. the time, yeah. Oh, yeah, I'm thrilled with yeah. Mercedes, uh, you know, promotion of my book. I, um, uh, well, just in general, people just say, wow, yeah, I thought I was all alone. And, um, and, and, you know, to understand how this works is very, very helpful. And to understand that this is something that everybody is dealing with. Um, you know, I think we all know that instinctively, you know, where we're afraid to say something because we're afraid we're going to offend or, or people are going to shun us if, you know, we don't have the, the right view. And we instinctively know that, and that's why we tend to self-censor. But, of course, those decades of self-censorship through political correctness, uh, you know, if, yeah, the bill is, has come due, and lots of really destructive agendas come out of that self-censorship. But most people, in general, are, are just uh, very, very happy to have it all kind of play, you know, put in one place. Uh, you know, people have read my book and have uh, been dealing with a lot of the social pressures that I discuss in the book. And, you know, social pressures have been discussed by a long line of like social scientists like Solomon Ash and Stanley Milgram, who did those experiments, very famous experiments in the in the 50s and 60s about social conformity. Mm. Um, it, it's not like we don't know about it, but I, I wrote the book because I thought it was important to have all of that in one place, to kind of go through the history, you know, of how these tactics or what I call the machinery of loneliness has been used to control whole populations, uh, the war on the private sphere, how political correctness, identity politics, and mobs walk through the walk through the tactics. Walk through. Let's 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 dig into what this how this really operates. Okay. Well, I you know I I reduce it to what I call the machinery of loneliness. Yeah. Identity politics, which serves to divide us, to categorize us as, you know, not individual human beings who are unique or made in the image of God, but, but you know, just, you know, pigeonhole us into oppressor or victim status. That's identity politics. Political correctness is meant to induce self-censorship, to make us either shut up or even lie about what we believe yeah. in order to gain social approval. And then, of course, you've got the mob. Uh, and mobs come in many different forms, whether it's a street mob like Antifa or, um, you know, a human relations department, a corporation or social media mob. All of that meant to enforce identity policy and political correctness, which is meant to divide and separate us and, and, and uh, you know, make us more, drive us into the kind of isolation that Hannah Arendt talked about, how tyrannical governments always seek to bring about isolation, to isolate people against one another, because that's really the only way you can control you can control them. Yeah, that's that's I couldn't improve upon that. That is exactly the process. And I would just point out that um, you go back to Genesis one. Um, God said the reason He made woman is because it's not good for man to be alone. <laughs> we are social animals. Um, we need each other, mm -hmm. and we need each other, especially in the context of understanding um, who we are, why we're here, and what our purpose is for being here, which makes it ultimately a spiritual issue. And that's why tyrants invariably always uh, seek to destroy the private sector, because the relationship between me and my God, or you and your God, is a private relationship. Fundamentally, it is a private relationship, and you're accountable to him. Um, they can't stand that because that puts God between them and what they mm -hmm. want, which is control. And it also gives us inner strength. Yes. The strength that we need to resist these tyrannies. Amen. And, and, and of course, that's why the private sphere has always come under attack. Uh, I would add to that, Genesis, you know, I was thinking about how the very first thing that the tyrant, the serpent, Satan, whatever you want to call it, the evil force does uh, when um, pushing man to his fall is, is to, get, to get Eve isolated. She's by herself. Yes. 
she can't consult with her husband. She's being influenced in isolation. And that's often the key. That's how this phenomenon works. Uh, it's why all cult leaders like Jim Jones or, you know, drive people into isolation first in order to yeah. control them. Patty Hearst, you know, when she was kidnapped, she was locked in a closet for six weeks, uh, during which time she got these Maoist, uh, you know, th these propaganda uh, sessions drilled into her. And then she came out six weeks later with her new identity uh, that she later told Larry King uh, in an interview that she totally lost her sense of self after that whole episode. But anyway, I'm digressing here, but my whole point, of course, has to do with isolation from the very beginning, from the garden. Yeah. You know, it's, it's not unique to the Christian understanding of the world because Aristotle uh, in his The Politics, first line is man is a social animal. Mm -hmm. um, but I think the fundamental distinction that is at stake here, Jesus pointed to it when he said uh, to the Pharisees about um, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar and that which is God to God. And that said, the state is not the whole. There are certain things that the state is God created to take care of, but there are all these other things, these private separate things from the state um, that are between us and our God. And that's why the Declaration of Independence says in the opening, we have these certain inalienable rights that we were endowed with by our creator. That's, that is the tyrant's worst enemy. Mm -hmm. This is the Bill Walton Show, and I'm here with uh, Stella Morbido, who's written the topic discussion today, a book, uh, Weaponization of Loneliness, and uh, with Mark Tapscott, who's with the Epic Times and covers the Congress. For, I feel sorry for you, Mark. Uh, so anyway, somebody's got to do it. <laughs> and we're, we're trying to get to the bottom of, the, of this, this loneliness machine that, that Stella's identified. And, and I've, I've, I'm still asking myself a lot of questions as we talk, which is, you know, is, is it different now from what it was 50 years ago? Is 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 it that much more apparent now? I mean, I my view is it is, but I would go back to saying, okay, what are the things that make us less lonely? Well, civil civic society institutions like the Boy Scouts and church and 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 uh, the Lions Club and things like that, uh, they they keep us feeling like we're not alone. I th there's also this notion of of our relationship with God, and churches, and we've seen church attendance plummet. Uh, and then we've got the government's role I mentioned, uh, you know, just three years ago, two years ago, we were all locked down, not allowed to interact with each other. And so it does seem like it's getting worse, but fill in the details. What else is there that makes it different now from, from 1973? Yeah, there's been a, a real dive in social trust. I mean, uh, if you look at the general social survey that was done uh, in, uh, in the 70s, um, and I, I can't cite the statistics, but uh, to the question, you know, that you can generally trust people, uh, there, there's been a huge uh, drop in people who say that you can today versus when that survey was first um, administered with that question. So social trust is really important for a civil society to exist. I mean, you want to be able to you know, walk down the street without fear of being attacked. You want to be able to, you know, smile at a stranger without them thinking you've got, uh, you know, some ulterior motive. You know, social trust is what, it's like the oil that keeps a, a, a good society going. And, and yes, I think it's a whole lot more evident to us today than it was 50 years ago. However, I would say that that's for us. You know, people who are, you know, what I called pro-thought, People who think about these things uh, versus those who have been thoroughly propagandized or, you know, indoctrinated with these narratives, um, you know, don't really get it because they 
you know, are isolated to a great extent, whether it's through the propagandizing and the public schools or universities, uh, and people feel drawn to that only because they're fearful of being rejected if they don't accept that line. Um, you know, you, like there's a recent poll that just came out uh, that people are not proud to be American anymore. Well, that's just the result of decades of propaganda in, in yeah, the poll, academia. And, yeah, and, and polls just sometimes show oh, how susceptible people are to the latest uh, but what they tell you or what people say they believe. Well, if I had to, if I had to put one, let me throw a candidate out here for the the biggest villain, which would be the identity politics, and in particular critical race theory, mm-hmm. where it basically says no matter, you can't do anything for the fact that if you're white, mm-hmm. you are racist, mm-hmm. and there's no way to atone for that sin. I mean, Ibram X. Kendi is. You know, unlike God, he won't forgive us for that sin of being white. And then we've then sliced and diced not just black people, but we've got every single small category of uh, of subgroups. And we have what, what they call intersectionality. Right. So if you're black, if you're female, female are also or if you're gay. And we've got a press secretary now for the president who, who fits the intersectionality thing perfectly she's black she's gay and she's female mm-hmm. so she's the perfect victim the perfect victim but it's got us all no. now you, you're walking down the street and, and you just wonder what's in people's minds where they're all deciding there's they're sizing people up and they know you can't be like each other because you're in a different category yeah yeah right you, you is that you, is that a you, you're the expert well it's insidious I'm, i mean it, you know you're basically uh you know boxing yourself into these identities and and, you know, it's interesting because as it gets narrower and narrower, uh, you'd think that, oh, you come right down to the individual. But what you come right down to is the atomized individual, yeah. the individual who has become even more isolated through, you know, all of these uh, box scores or, you know, whatever you want to call it, uh, you know, claiming these victim points or. No, there's, the a, vic- there's identi- a victim scorecard. Oh, there is yeah. a scorecard. Yeah. And yeah. also for oppressors. Oppressors. You know? oppressors. Yeah, I mean, if you're white and male and and straight, and so on and so forth, um, English-speaking, or, you know, they have all these different identifiers. Does yeah. this come from the government, or did it infect the government? Because these ideas came out of academia, and I, I now think of the federal government as the biggest, um, not the, um, along with universities and K-12, and mm-hmm. now the military, they're really pushing these ideas of identity, mm-hmm. and, but it, it didn't right. originate in the government. No, no, I don't. So you this, know, is, they, a, this they, is an unusual they, totalitarianism. Well, these case. academics with these theories, whether it's critical race theory or gender theory or queer theory or whatever they want to call it, you know, uh, you know, they, it, it came out of academia. We can go back and talk about the Frankfurt School 100 years ago and then oh. the whole the long march through all the institutions. Yes. Yes. But one of the main institutions to capture We've covered is that the a government. Lot here. I, yeah. I love Anyway, continue. <laughs> but, the, but the, you know, the government basically, basically captured by these um these theories uh i would you know i would i'm not the expert on that but that is the the trend line for all of this if you look at the frankfurt school and you look at all of these theories coming out of academia that's what you have i mean you have um uh them infecting first of all academia and academia because that's how you get credentialed to go into all the other institutions, whether right. it's law or medicine or anything else, Government. you've got to, you, you know, you're, yeah. then, then <clears throat> you uh, are in a position to, you know, run for office, take over the school boards and so on and so forth. And, and then, you know, of course, that's the farm team for running for higher office. So it, it began, you know, I don't know, go back to that Weaver co- uh, title, ideas have consequences. Yeah. Uh, you're taking me back to my youth uh, in a couple of ways. Good. Because <laughs> your question about um, uh, is it different from 50 years ago, my wife and I were talking about this recently. And we both were talking about how much we enjoyed when we were children in the 50s, seven, eight, nine years old. Every kid in the neighborhood had a bicycle. Mm. We stayed out until our mothers and dads 
forced us to come back home, you know, and nobody worried about it because neighborhoods were basically safe. Yeah, and people That's knew not one the another. Case now. That's not the case. Mm-hmm. The long march. When I first became interested in, in political things uh, in 1964, as a result of Ronald Reagan's The Speech, the first serious book that I read was called The Democrat's Dilemma by a man named Phil Crane, who used, later became a congressman. Oh, I remember that. His book documented uh, the growth of the League for Industrial Democracy uh, in Britain and then in the United States. The League for Industrial Democracy was the Fabian Socialist. And their march through the American institutions began with the academic world um, and then expanded from there. Um, it's, it's not simply a matter of government, but government is, after academia, the first object of the long march because it's the key to influencing every other institution. Can I do my version of that history? Sure. See if, see what you, it's your you show, Bill. Have, well, <laughs> <laughs> but, but you're here as the subject matter expert. Yeah. <laughs> long march, Gramsci. Italian theorist Absolutely. in the 20s. Yes. Marxism was basically an economic theory, oppressed versus oppressed, the capitalists versus the workers, and that's the way they proceeded forever. And then Gramsci began to realize, well, wait a second, the workers are not really rising up here. It's not, we don't have an economic problem. That, that We're not solving our economic... They, they don't want to be Marxists. They want more refrigerators or... Mm-hmm. or uh, you know, consumer goods. They don't, Absolutely. They, so it wasn't working. And so he observed that if, if it's not working in economics, it could work in social settings. And he then decided you've got to take over the universities, the government, yeah. the, the K-12, the, uh, the cultural institutions. And that's the long march where they're mm-hmm. taking these ideas yeah. and they're infiltrating these institutions. And that's why when we see it happening in the military, it's like the culmination of the long march because yeah. that for a long time was the most uh, traditional color, race, sex, or orientation blind institution in the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, the United States military became a model of integration uh, for the world to, to follow. And look what they're doing to it now. The isolation, the loneliness is the inevitable product of alienation. Marxism's fundamental point is alienation between those who are the rulers and those who are the oppressed. Just change the categories and you've got critical race theory. It's not coincidental that critical race theorists, their roots go back to Marx. Um, And that's their business. As, As Stella brilliantly describes it, uh, it's the weaponization of loneliness because when we're separated, when we don't work together, we are controllable. And that's what it's about. But how are we supposed to deal with this? Because the the question I asked Stella last time is you identify the totalitarian of of the past. You had you you identify Cromwell in England, who was, yeah. who used his religion as a kind of totalitarian force, and then we had the French, Robespierre. Then we fast forward to Lenin and Stalin, and then we had I don't know I don't know what category Hitler was in exactly, but certainly you've got Mao and things like that. You had an individual who had his cult following that imposed this on a society. Mm-hmm. Now it seems like we're talking about. Everybody in academia or everybody in the, in right. the military. And it's, this, these ideas, it, it doesn't seem to have, you called it hydra-headed? A hydra-headed, hydra-headed beast. What's the nature of this beast? What do we What do we do about it? Yeah, it all kind of comes out of this idea, this globalist push. Um, well, I think, I think they've made it very clear that for them, the enemy is speech, is us talking to one another, is conversation. That's why you see so such a such a hard push for these disinformation governance boards or uh, you know you're gonna you're gonna keep seeing this over and over again. 
you know, misinformation, disinformation, yeah. malinformation, malinformation, you know, and, and, and they're trying to control speech and, and censorship is critical to pushing, whether it's a hydra headed beast or it's just a, you know, a demagogue operating on, you know, with his cult following, it's, it's freedom of speech, having actual conversations that they cannot control or that they can't, they, they uh, want to control, uh, but having those conversations and resisting the urge to self-censor uh, is really the only way out. Well, let me amplify that. You mentioned misinformation. What are your three? I've, I know that you've, I've forgotten the site. Misinformation and what's the other? Dis disinformation and malinformation. They claim that misinformation. Well, let me is, do that. Okay. Because this is coming straight from our government. This mm -hmm. is part. This is straight out of CISA. And you know, uh, Ben Weingarten. You know Ben. Oh yeah. He yeah. he did the investigative work on this, and this was a report that just came out. And in the Missouri case, I think it was Missouri versus Biden. I think anyway, they won the case, and they're forcing the government to stop doing what it was doing. And what was happening was CISA, which is run by Jen Easterly, they'd redefined. Homeland Security, which is part of, which is supposed to protect our infrastructure, they redefine infrastructure to include elections. And that we had to protect our elections or election infrastructure, which meant you're not allowed to talk about 2020. There's accepted speech and non-accepted speech. And then she brought in this notion that the American mind as, is our cognitive infrastructure. And they had a duty to make sure that only certain kinds of thought w was allowed, misinformation, disinformation, but the favorites, malinformation. And malinformation, she defined as, well, these are true facts, but All we don't context. agree with the way they're being interpreted. Mm -hmm. yeah. Or the context, right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's Orwellian. It's, it's and dystopian. This, this was, and she it's, was convening social media companies. I mean, this, all these all these. Paranoid fantasies that you know people thought you're just being a conspiracy person. No, it's really happening. Yeah, yeah mm -hmm. it really is happening. And, and yeah, this this actually, I don't know how far back you want to go, but if you look at the the Frankfurt School professor academic Herbert Marcuse, he came up with this theory called repressive tolerance, which really meant you you really shouldn't tolerate this idea of free speech, because what that means is that, you know, that, that the, uh, the oppressed don't really have a voice. Or, I don't know, I mean, he had these, uh, you know, he had written up this whole theory of repressive tolerance, which was essentially an attack on freedom of speech, sure. because he knew darn well that if people were talking to one another, exchanging information, verifying re reality with one another, that there was no way they could uh, pull off this, this what I would call, uh, you know, this revolution that, you know, I would call a self-supremacist revolution. These guys are not really in it for the, I mean, they may believe their own propaganda about justice, equality, and so on, but they're really in it for themselves, in my view. They're just self-supremacists uh, is the way I put it. But that he knew that free speech was the uh, thorn in the side of their uh, designs, their social engineering designs. So this theory of repressive tolerance took off. And today you see it in campus, like free speech is hate speech. You know, you'll see these kinds of slogans that come straight out of that whole, um, th that whole theory that Marcuse had to try to shut down free speech. One of the ways, one of the many ways that you see the influence of Marcuse on that particular point is in CRT, the white supremacists cannot but oppress mm -hmm. and therefore must be repressed. Mm -hmm. That's right. That's right. It's, it's a, um, you know, a no win cash 22 situation yeah. that they set you in. Uh, colorblindness. It, it's so weird. I mean, in my chapter, I have a chapter on identity politics. Uh, and I, I start off with a Martin Luther King quote about how people should be judged by the content of their character, not by the color of their skin. And then after that, you've got, um, what's the name, Imbram Kendi saying, 
that colorblindness is just an excuse for racism. I don't yeah. know the exact quote, but that's yeah. basically what he says is in complete contradiction to King's dream. By the way, I think his real name is something like Brian Smith. Yeah. Don't forget the X, Ibram X. Kendi. Yeah. 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 X. Oh, I don't know. Elon Musk <laughs> likes the word letter X now. But anyway, uh, I, I don't know what you know what's going on with that. But yeah, Ibram yeah. X. Kendi. Why, why um, did Musk pick the X? Like then? Malcolm X. Yeah. I don't know. But anyway, uh, and and going back to what you were saying before, Mark, um, uh, about this, you know, the, the how the revolutions pushed this awareness of, uh, you know, the oppressed or whatever. If you go back to Marx, he talked about class consciousness. Consciousness. Okay, yeah. so what that means is don't look at somebody as an individual, as a unique human being. Look at them in terms only of the haves versus the have-nots. You know, what do they have that you don't? And it's the same thing with all the rest of this stuff. Uh, critical race theory, you're only supposed to judge people by their race. And by the way, you can be... You can have black skin, but be considered a white yes. supremacist yes. in critical race theory if, if you accept uh, you know, any of these so-called white values. Yeah. And I have a in my chapter, I have a chapter in there where I talk about that exhibit that was up for just a couple of days at the Smithsonian, the, the African-American Museum. Whiteness. White culture. Yeah. White culture. Yeah, it, or, or, you know, signs of white these are all universal values that were listed in that infographic. Being on time, punctuality, uh, being nice to people, being polite was considered a, quote, white value. Um, you know, working hard. All of these things that are universal values, really, universal virtues that have nothing to do with your race or ethnicity or religion, pretty much not your religion, but but they... Um, it's fascinating to me because the target, in my view, was not, quote, whiteness per se. The target was all of those universal values. Yes. That is what that infographic and all these uh, theorists are seeking to destroy. Yeah. The things that hold up civil society that allow us to be friends. Civilization. That allow us to talk to yeah. one another. Yeah. So, Kenny, we've got a graphic we could use. It's the, it's the Smithsonian exhibit. The, uh, um, the I think the the exhibit was called uh, "White Culture in the United States," and it was in the Black History Museum before. For two days. For two days, but it, it was. was like... it's, and I've got the I've got the PDF of it, but it was uh, the white culture's uh, rugged individualism. Whatever scientific uh, method. family structure, it has the scientific nuclear method, nucle yeah. nuclear yeah. nuclear family father mother two to three children is ideal, um, emphasis on scientific method, uh, the Protestant work ethic, uh, future orientation, plan for the future, delay gratification, having goals, having goals, time, following rigid time schedules, oh. uh, it I gives on and on I I but it. it I would look at it a little differently. I'd look at this as colorblind and saying, gee, if you wanted to be successful, what's the success formula? Get married, go to work, stay married, um, save some money, working. invest yeah. in yourself. Yep. You know, these are sort of the things that, that, that make people successful. So I was, I don't know, I was pleased or mortified to know that that's white yeah. culture. You know, Kamala <laughs> Harris, our uh, esteemed <laughs> vice president yesterday was blasting Governor DeSantis in the Florida curriculum on uh, black studies, and she seized upon one point out of the 191 basic points in the curriculum. Uh, that basic point that she seized on was that there were, in spite of everything, there were individual slaves in the South prior to the Civil War who used the skills that they obtained in slavery to advance themselves. There were actually some black millionaires in the South prior to the Civil War because of that. And that's that's a testimony to the, to the human spirit's determination, no matter what. Mm -hmm. If you if you choose 
to seek to better yourself in any situation. She ignored the other 190 and blasted DeSantis for that one thing precisely because... I agree, Roxy. He's saying saying some really alarming things. (laughs) I mentioned Kamala and Roxy gets upset. She she condemned it because it represented uh, a a real historical application of those white values that should be an example to the current generations, an inspiration to them. So this is a funny kind of totalitarianism. Yeah. And frankly, In I, frankly, I don't get it because it seems very nihilistic. It seems like it's built on destruction yeah. and not on creating anything. I mean, that's, this is, that's right. And and that's a source of hope for us. I, I really, do. I mean, I think yeah. this is unsustainable. I don't think this can. I don't think something like this Absolutely. can go on forever. Yeah. No. However, I think the the goal, of course, is to destroy all of these things. Uh, you know, destroy all that that's good that it's allows nihilistic. you to. No, let's think. Go ahead. I've, no, it, 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 yeah. yeah, in order to, you know, get that iron grip on power, uh, the question is whether or not, you know, we're all destroyed in the process. Uh, but you're right. It's not sustainable at all. It, it can't be. It, it, the revolutions always eat their own anyway. Yeah. I, I, I'm optimistic um, for a couple of, I think, very significant reasons. Uh, number one, the Supreme Court's recent decision on freedom of speech. Uh, there seems to be uh, a continuing uh, general consensus in our country among most people. Yeah, it's a free country. You should be able to say and think what you want. Uh, and especially when what's involved is your religious freedom, your religious expression and practice. People get upset when the government tells them, no, you can't believe that. You can't believe that. And there is a reaction to it. You see the same reaction in the this explosive growth of the parents' movement uh, against the wokeism and CRT in local schools. People, they're not That's going really, to sit and back. That is exploding. It is. It really is. It's pretty amazing to watch. Um, and one of the biggest stories that has not been published or covered, uh, as it deserves, in my judgment, as a journalist, is the sudden, in the last two years, six states have adopted genuine school choice. The money follows the child. The child doesn't go where the state says go. The parents make that decision. That will spread to more and more states, and that will preserve the um, avenue of maintaining those who understand and appreciate and insist upon the recognition of traditional values, including freedom of speech. Oklahoma, which is my home state, uh, by coincidence, was the most recent one. Um, I think Kentucky. I don't. I don't know the others, but uh, it. This has just happened, you know, mm-hmm. and it's and it's happened under the radar. Uh, the teachers' unions, of course, have been watching it, and they're very mm-hmm. concerned about it. Uh, but the mainstream media hasn't picked up on it yet, and of course, when they do, they'll be very critical of it. Yeah, the the uh, I think that is a very hopeful sign uh, because what that attests to is what I mentioned in my last chapter, uh, the spread of what I call parallel institutions yes. or what are called parallel institutions. Uh, you know, the, these institutions that pretty much have to take over when the uh, you know the the ones run by the government are corrupt or the ones uh, like the. The education sector now we've got the medic medi- medicine has been corrupted yeah. uh and you're going to need more and more uh you know kind of a spread it should be a mushrooming yeah. uh to to make it effective uh and make it hard to repress uh, of these uh, parallel institutions the thing that i think people need to be aware of is that these tyrants are always on a search and destroy mission yes. for 
any <clears throat> sign of independence that way, sure. whether it's, uh, you know, institutional, uh, whether it's, uh, you know, just, I think at this point, even just a conversation. I mean, they, they one of the purposes of identity politics is to make sure that people, uh, uh, especially youth, are very careful about who they talk to out of fear of being shunned. If, yeah. You know, they, they, they don't want that brush of guilt by association uh, if they um, are connected with someone who the left has identified as fascist, white supremacist, uh, you know, all the smear words that are used to demonize, um, you know, bigot, racist, transphobe, it goes on and on. It's a really long list. Election denier, anti-vaxxer, uh, all of these things. It's hard to keep track of. But uh, a lot of folks, especially, you know, I see a lot of young suburban women very influenced by by that. You know, you saw a lot of them out in the Black Lives Matter a couple of years ago, those, those uh, mm -hmm. uh, riots and everything. Uh, college educated, you know, they, they want, they are very, very careful about their status. And they want to be very uh, certain that they're not like associating with someone who would be uh, classified, you know, as identity identity politics does as the oppressor. So you see, you see all of these dynamics in so many different ways. Um, and I, the purpose of my book is to try to expose a lot of that, so that people are more able to to speak freely to one another, or to understand the, you know, the strategies uh, that are used against them as well as develop counter strategies um, for that suppression of yeah. speech to you know, push up well, against it, seems, it seems to me one of the strategies would be getting together with people face-to-face -face in social settings yes. and sharing your, what, what you believe is true in that, with it, and feeling free to speak. I mean, we... we uh, I don't know if I should say this on camera, but when we had the lockdowns, and I'm going to chat with the camera here, I'm sure somebody's listening, um, we formed a quarantine club, and we decided that maybe we ought to stick together and visit with people face-to-face -face so we didn't feel so lonely, and mm -hmm. we didn't feel so isolated, no. and if we had questions about what was happening, we could talk with other people about the questions to figure out what was true. That seems to me to be a very healthy human thing to do. Absolutely, yeah. And I, I think one of the strategies has got to be, and maybe the school choice is part of that, but one of the strategies has got to be we have to have alternate mini institutions where people can get together and do just that. And that's what church does. I, yeah. Well, that was, one, was, one of, that was a softball. Thank <laughs> you. One, one of the real heroes, unrecognized uh, to this point, but I think he will be at some point, of, of the pandemic resistance, if you will, uh, as Pastor John MacArthur out in California, um, he resolved at the outset when Gavin Newsom said the churches can't meet, they continued meeting, and they've had lots of litigation, and so far they are winning. Good. The reason they're winning is because the Supreme Court, uh, Justice Alito, uh, in the decision involving the New York um, uh, Catholic Church that was challenging the um, shutdown, Alito said, in his opinion, we meant what we said about the First Amendment. Mm -hmm. And even the Ninth Circuit is getting that message, the Ninth Circuit being the California mm -hmm. one that's so liberal. Um, churches are where people, they're based on a relationship, the relationship between the individual and Jesus Christ as their Savior, and the fellowship that they have with other believers. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's, that grows out of the family. That's, that is resistance central mm -hmm. to the state, and it always will be. Well, you're in the belly of the beast with your ministry on Capitol Hill. Capitol Hill, you would think uh, there are about 20,000 congressional aides uh, mostly young men and women, average age about 27, tend to be from um, the best schools, very highly educated, tend to be very liberal as a result, uh, and radical. Um, but there is about a third of them who come from the South or the West uh, who maintain 
traditional orientations. Um, it, it's it's a hostile missionary field, if you will. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I would think. And, and it, it didn't really dawn on me. The Lord called me to begin this ministry, Hill Faith, three years ago. It really didn't dawn on me until about a year into it. My gosh, you know, this is not the jungle, but it's a hostile missionary <laughs> field. And, and, and one of the reasons is because um, so many of these very intelligent, very dedicated um, young men and women come with these predispositions against spirituality, simply against spirituality, because they've been, you know, they come from a materialist understanding of the world, which is exactly what tyrants want them to think, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but when I challenge them with questions such as, for example, how do you explain the empty tomb of Christ? Did his friends get his body? Did they steal his body? Did his, the enemies of Christ steal his body? They don't know the answer to that. And then I explained to them, well, it wasn't their friends, wasn't his friends, because they were all a bunch of cowards. They scattered when Christ was arrested. And beyond that, the Roman guard that was guarding the tomb, there's no way the disciples would have been able to overcome those guys, steal the body, hide it, and go away. His enemies, the disciples were proclaiming the resurrection a couple of weeks later. If his enemies had stole the body, they would have rolled it down Main Street, Jerusalem, and that would have been the end of Christianity. And when these young people realize, you know, I don't have an answer to that, it opens the door once again to the possibility, well, maybe there is more to this spiritual stuff than I've been told. And it takes time, but they do respond. That's a really, really interesting illustration. Um, I think it, it speaks to a couple of things. Uh, one of which is the extreme ignorance yes. of, uh, you know, of the scriptures. Uh, you know, they don't, generally don't study that stuff at all. Yeah. And so <clears throat> it, the questions never even occur to them. <clears throat> and, and yet also they've got this worldview that's been imprinted on them, whether it's through the schools or, you know, propaganda or whatever, uh, that's very anti-religious or anti-faith. Yes. And a lot of that, I think, is dictated by, again, that fear of being tainted. Yes, You absolutely. know, with guilt by association, you know, to associate with someone who's considered, you know, faithful, or spiritual, uh, unless it's, you know, spiritual, not religious, you know, they've got yeah. these new, uh, yeah. you know, new age things that they, you know, to try to fill that vacuum. But uh, it's really interesting. It's a great illustration. One of, one of the, one of the things that you notice uh, when you're talking with people on the Hill about spiritual matters, the idea, the idea that, no, I don't want to be involved with that. I don't want to be associated with it. Those, those people are religious nuts. Mm-hmm. But then when, it, when, it, when they realize, I need, to, I need to think about this. I need to really take this seriously and determine whether, what do I really think about this? Sometimes there's this turn. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm going to be a real rebel. I'm going to think for myself. Right. This is, this That's is, where this it is This is her Della's pro thought. Yes. Yeah, that's what I say. I was saying that before that there are really only two political camps left, uh, and I call them pro-thought and anti-thought. Yeah, yeah. Ignorance is very isolating in itself. I mean, you know, if, but if, if you had a bunch of six progressives sitting around this table, they would say the same thing. They would say we're pro-thought, and those other people sure are, they would. are deplorable and you know troglodytes. Sure, they would. And, and, but then why are they censoring anything? Exactly. That, That's the answer. You know, then That's the exactly. answer. Can't, why can't you hear what else is saying? Why can't they engage? Okay. Or why yeah. do they cover their... I can't hear you, basically. You right. know, this, this sort of arrested development, you know, where they, you know, they, they don't want to even hear. And I think part of that, and I get that, I see that with a lot of youth, where they don't even want to engage. Right. They don't even want to hear another person. They don't know how to engage. And I think there is a a fear yeah. that, you know, the natural curiosity might kick in 
and they will want to engage and they don't want that because that will get them tainted yeah. you know in the eyes of their reference group or their peer group or whatever i'd like to talk for another couple of days but unfortunately we, we we probably need to circle in for a bit of a landing and we'll reconvene but you know it, I, i've got this notepad here and i got four quadrants in it. and i used to want design all these shows we'll do this 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 well that one that went away a long time ago because <laughs> you can't do that. But I do get down to this this lower right quadrant here, and it's sort of what I think our our, our solution might be. And I, I think the solution is spiritual. Be, you know, I've got a good friend Tony Perkins who runs Family yeah. Research Council, yeah. who we work together at Council for National Policy, and he wrote a book called Fear No Man. Yeah. And what you're talking about, Stella, it's it's real. Is that people live in fear of the approval or disapproval of other people. Mm-hmm. And until you can get away from that, mm-hmm. if you can't get away from that, you're going to be forever in prison. Yeah. And that's exactly right. And you need and... to think spiritually. You need to believe in order to, whatever, whether it's Christian or, or right. you know, whatever, that you've got to have that spiritual uh, strength. That's right. And, and the less you're able to do that, the more susceptible you are to all of these uh, punishments that will will be visited upon you if you don't, you know, if you don't get with the program. I mean, I think one of the reasons medicine is so corrupt is that these physicians, you know, they go to school for, you know, they go pre-med, then they go to school for four more years, and they have the residency, and they get in big debt. And, but, you know, they've got these goals, material goals, you know, that are all tied up in status and money and, um, you know, I, I know that there are good physicians out there, but uh, by and large, before you know it, the American Medical Association is saying, oh, yeah, we have to do gender-affirming care for kids or, the, you know, the Academy of Pediatrics or whatever. I mean, how does that happen? Well, it happens through that kind of corruptible process where if you are so invested in the material and your status, and, of course, that means, you know, what other people are thinking of you, um, then, yes, the fear of having your livelihood taken from you, like, you know, as what happened during COVID, if you didn't get the injection, you'd be, uh, you know, fired from your job or, you know, uh, you know, it went on and on or shunned or have, you know, your relatives. There, there was a point there at which uh, people were being encouraged to snitch on their friends, yeah, their yeah. loved ones, their Officially relatives. Encouraged. All plays yeah. into this war on the private sphere of life. But you're exactly right. If you don't have that spiritual grounding where you understand that all the rest of this is really dross in the end, then you're, you, you know, you're, you're if you uh, have captured. that, If you have that, you've got the strength to deal with all of it. You this. have the strength yeah. to resist it, and that's yeah. exactly what the tyrant doesn't want. May, may so, I quickly point out two So we points. need your ministry to be very successful, Mark. Yeah. <laughs> Praise Lord, Lord. <laughs> anyway, sorry, continue. There are two things happening right now that I just find tremendously encouraging. If you've not seen the movie The Sound of Freedom, Yeah. You've got to go see that. About human trafficking. Yes. Yeah. Yes. The response to that movie has been phenomenal and underreported, and that is significant. The other is the Epoch Times, and I'm going to sound self-serving with this because I work there. The Epoch Times in the last several years has exploded in terms of its readership, and I am convinced that the reason for that, fundamentally the reason for that is the Epoch Times does not adhere to the mainstream media conformity. We report things the way we see mm-hmm. them. And people are yearning for yeah, we independent authority that they can trust. Mm-hmm. Exactly, yeah. And, and that is the formula for success. Last words. Mark, thank you. Stella, thank you. Thank you. We, we, we'll have to reconvene. Uh, maybe it's not quite the last words. We're, we're going to agree that that uh, Chris Murphy's bill on um, national strategy for social connection, don't vote for it. Yeah. No. <laughs> and Our also, no. we're not exactly certain that the U.S. Surgeon General ought to be in the business of solving the things we're talking about, unless he's willing to start a ministry, which uh, 
Actually, I don't think I'd like his ministry. So anyway, thanks, guys. And, uh, Thank you. And uh, Stella, thanks for this beautiful book and giving us Thank a chance you. to have this conversation. And I might add, Stella's joined the Quarantine Club, and Mark, you're soon to join as well. Uh, so thanks for joining the Bill Walton Show. I hope you enjoyed this conversation and, and others like it. Uh, I think you see we're trying to get into what's true and what's right and what's next. And uh, in particular, we're trying to get at uh, um, truth and, and, and freedom. And we're, we're zeroing in on that. And anyway, I hope you'll join us for future episodes. We've uh, You can find us on all the major podcast platforms. We're on Substack. We're on CPAC now on Monday night. And you can also find us, obviously, on the BillWaltonShow.com website. Please uh, give us your comments. And also, if you get a chance on your platforms to give us a rating, uh, we'd very much like a, a five-star rating. And uh, it helps us. It helps uh, help advance the show. So Stella, Mark, thanks. And uh, I'll see you guys both again. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you very yeah. much. Yeah. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Want more? Click the subscribe button or head over to thebillwaltonshow.com to choose from over 100 episodes. You can also learn more about our guest on our Interesting People page. And send us your comments. We read everyone and your thoughts help us guide the show. If it's easier for you to listen, check out our podcast page and subscribe there. In return, we'll keep you informed about what's true, what's right, and what's next. Thanks for joining.